So welcome again once to First Christian Church, to everybody in uh, both here in the West and those in the East and the people who are watching and participating in the life of our church today in Lovington. I'm very glad you're with us. For those who we've never met, um, my name is Wayne and I'm part of the pastoral team and I'm glad you're with us today. And I'd invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You can see on the screen where if you're sitting in various places as, you're, as we are participating in life together today, where that may be found. Some people watch it on their, uh, look at it on their smartphone, maybe you bring your own Bible. But if you're looking at the Bibles that are in the pew racks in front of you, here in Decatur in the west, and in, uh, it's in a pew rack in front of you in the east, there are some people moving around. And in Lovington, you see two different pages, folks over there. Uh, that's because you have two versions in your uh, pew racks, a regular print and a large print as well, so you can figure out which one is you, all right? And we're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in just a few minutes. It's great to be back uh, here in the pulpit in, at First Decatur again today. Uh, if you're just brand new to the church and you've only been here a few weeks ago, who's that guy? I've never seen him before. My name is Wayne. And... Uh, to those who are longtime partners, partners of our and members of our church, you go, where you been? Well, Leslie and I took a few days away last week visiting with my parents. They live in British Columbia, Canada. And while there, we took them on a vacation for a few days. We went out to the far western shores of Vancouver Island. It's a beautiful setting. Vancouver Island is off the coast of uh, Vancouver, off the coast of Canada, if you will. It's 290 miles long, and there's one stretch of beach that is seven miles long of sand, and at either end of that beach is something called the Pacific Rim Trail, and there are these long trails that you can walk. Less than I walked every day, anywhere uh, you can. The shortest trail is about two miles. The longest one that you can do in a loop is eight miles, and so. It's a fascinating time that we had there. You, the, the forest is quite unique. It's rainforest, and you can, as you walk in the trail, you can reach out this way and touch dense forest that, like, nobody's walked through for years upon years. And if you go this way, just the other way, you're quickly uh, reaching your fingertips into, you know, basically sand, and, and the only thing between, well, there's nothing between the, that sand and Japan. So it's a beautiful spot, and uh, we had a marvelous time. We appreciate your grace in giving us some time away, and my parents, uh, to their friends here, uh, they send their greetings. So we were gone last week, but prior to that, you say, well, I haven't seen you in July. Well, that's because throughout um, the weekends in July, particularly Sundays, Leslie and I have been uh, ministering and caring and, if you will, being part of the life and ministry of the church in Lovington. And uh, what we're doing is we're, as two congregations, uh, we're trying to assess um, the best ministry approach to both there and here. And um, so my attendance throughout July on the weekends has been very helpful there. And finally, if you say, well, I still haven't seen you around. Well, that's because in July, it's our church's habit that usually I take days out of the office working in some study settings and planning for uh, the coming years. So I've spent the last month or so basically planning sermons and a preaching calendar for 2019. We've got some really cool ideas coming your way. But for today, let's take a look at the sermon. I want to talk with you about congregations, about love, and about weddings. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Here's what I mean. Weddings, I've conducted uh, quite a few of them in more than 30 years of ministry. I can look around even in this room and know of some people who I've, I've, uh, I've had the opportunity of leading their ceremony. And uh, I've learned that the stress level at weddings can be fairly high. 
Do you know what I mean if you've been there? It's high for the bride. It's high for the groom. It's high for the wedding planner, for me, for the family. It, it's just up there. And here's why. We assume it's a one-time deal. They're getting married once, and they want to do it right. And a lot of brides have this understanding. They're going to have this lovely princess moment, and fair enough. Um, but it's pretty stressful. As a matter of fact, I have a friend who's a pastor. He visited his doctor a number of years ago. He said, I need an anti-anxiety pill that I will only take when I'm doing weddings. Can you help me out? And they gave him medication. I, I've never seen him perform a wedding, but he takes it two hours beforehand. I'd love to see what he's like. That would be very funny. Probably not very righteous, but very funny nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, in the midst of weddings, I, I've learned there are a few tricks to the trade, if you will, uh, a few things that can alleviate the stress and the emotion. For example, I usually carry some Kleenexes in my, in my pocket, and when we're backstage over here, I'll, um, I'll pass a few of those off to the groom, and I'll say this, okay, so if your bride comes down the aisle and she's very emotional, you can be the hero. You're going to have something, and you're going to look like the, you're this wonderful husband. All prepared. And it works over and over again, except not always. Like for a case, in, here's a case that happened. There's, there's a wedding, oh, this is a number of years ago now. It's been the last decade, and I'd known the young bride for years, like since she'd been a, a, in grade school, and she was this shy, timid little girl. And so we're, doing the, we're about to do the wedding, and I, I pass off the Kleenex to the groom. We're right back here. We walk out right onto this stage, and the doors back there open, and I was stunned, absolutely stunned that this shy, timid little girl was, I mean, this radiant bride. And she starts walking down the aisle toward her husband, and I lost it. And I mean, by the time we got up in stage, I don't mean just like, I mean, that sort of lost. You know, when you really, I couldn't get it together. And so in that moment, the groom, in a matter of brilliance, reached into his pocket and said, here, you need these more than we do. True story. So we're gonna look at um, a scripture today that is often read at weddings. It's known as the love chapter of the Bible, and it's fair to read it at weddings, but I would ask you this. Is it really for weddings? Was it written for lovers? I'll give you a hint. Well, let's read it and see if we can find it out, find out together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, pardon me, chapter 13. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom, if I mean, if I'm really knowledgeable, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have a faith that can move mountains but don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, if I'm really, really generous, and give my body to hardship that I may boast, if I do all that but don't have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes. It always perseveres. And verse 13 says, there are three things, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. 
So why are we looking at this passage in this chapter today? Well, we've been in this series called Quotables uh, throughout the month, and you've heard um, pastors Brian and Josh uh, both indicate that these are popular scriptures that we've been looking at throughout the summer. And uh, we looked at like John 3.16 and Psalm 23, Jeremiah chapter 29 and so forth. And um, these are scriptures that legitimately get put on coffee mugs or bumper stickers or, you know, you wear them around your wrist. So if I could just say so-called Jesus gadgets, Jesus trinkets that we, we kind of put these scriptures on because we like to have these daily reminders of what comes our way through scripture. But sometimes we take them out of context, and that's what we've been looking at as we've, been, as we've examined these passages of Scripture. And so when you hear that love is kind, when you read that love is patient and it's on a coffee mug and you're drinking coffee in the morning, do you know the context of those words? Why are they in the Bible? Because the context helps understand them more effectively. In other words, for 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is this really a passage about love between two spouses in a marriage? Is it about marital love, and is it appropriate for wedding readings? It can be, it can be read at, at weddings, yeah, of course. And it gives some overall understanding of love between a man and woman, but I need to tell you, Paul did not write it for lovers. This is actually written for people who are in, they're in anything but love. Let's set it in context. Paul the Apostle, premier writer of the New Testament, he visits Corinth, and uh, he starts a church. And he didn't write this back to them years later with wedding ceremonies in mind. In fact, what he did was he write, wrote it back to his congregation in Corinth, and the congregation was in great distress. This first church of Corinth was in trouble. Corinth was a city in ancient Greece known for two things. Rhetoric, in other words, public discourse, politics, politics, and party life. Those two things. People argued in the public square by day, and then they partied hard at night. You could think of Corinth as this way. It was Washington, D.C. and Las Vegas rolled up together into one ancient pagan town. And since there'd been, there was no church culture that, you know, people didn't come to church thinking that they knew how to act. They didn't, they were, so the church at Corinth is brand new, and so people come out of this rhetoric, this arguing, hard-partying town into the life of the church, they convert to Jesus Christ, and they are like you and me, our ancient brothers and sisters. These people who make up the congregation have received forgiveness of sins through the work of Jesus on the cross. However, they bring with them, they have no understanding really at first, that that means that by converting, their culture of how they do life has to change. And so they bring all their pagan practices into the church. And so you end up a congregation full of, some people have been walking with Jesus for a few years, some not for a few months, but for a few months. And they start arguing about how to do life. And you, and, and you can read through the rest of 1 Corinthians and you'll see that they have a variety of positions on this matter or this theology and way to manage this. And so they're, they're used to arguing. So they are really getting into the arguing and it's becoming very personal. That's it moves beyond rhetoric. And then they also bring their party life into the church. And the result is, if you read through the rest of the book, there are all sorts of lifestyle struggles. How do you manage this and how do you manage that? And the arguments fester and fester, and Paul eventually hears about it. The conflict grows and grows, and 
Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, really, as, in a way to kind of, if you will, quell, quell the riot, to bring the level, the, the level of arguments in the church down, saying, we've got to bring some peace to this congregation that's in disarray and struggle. And if that's the context of 1 Corinthians 13, I'd say disarray and struggle is not usually the context in most weddings, at least by the time you get to the wedding ceremony. There can be a little bit of struggle and maybe some arguments, teal or blue, napkins, which one's it going to be? I mean, you can get involved in all down the nitty-gritty, but in the long run, you would suspect that by the time you get to the ceremony and the bride is walking down the aisle, it's all settled. Now, I will tell you this. Sometimes the tension does tend to bring out the worst in a family and instead of the love of the family. And yes, I've occasionally experienced the worst of family life in the middle of a wedding, but not usually. However, these statements here, while we can read them at weddings, they are not about love at a wedding. The words describe love at a wedding, and fair enough, read them, because it helps us understand how to do love together as individuals. But the context of the chapter is not about people who love each other. In fact, it's written for people who can't stand each other. It's written as a corrective, not as a descriptive. Okay, And so, Paul... Paul puts it this way. At the very beginning of the book, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this isn't just my opinion. He's bringing out the big guns. He's bringing out the name of Jesus right off the bat. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of Jesus Christ, that all of you should agree with one another in what you say. There should be no divisions among you, and that you should be perfectly united in mind and thought. So, so guys, he says, my brothers and sisters, I, I've heard from Chloe's household. They've come to me and they've informed me that there's arguments and quarrels among you. Some of you are saying that, um, well, I follow Paul. That's who I look to. Another group in the church is saying, I follow Apollos, another leader. Or some are saying, I follow Peter. And then <laughs> there's some of you that just kind of be trumping everybody and go, well, okay, but fair enough. I follow Jesus. You know what I mean? And Paul is saying, you got to fix this. And what's interesting to me is that that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. It's at the very beginning of the book. It's not like there's some niceties. Well, the weather here is fine, and we did this, and we did this, and, you know, how are your kids, and how's the weather? No, this is at the beginning of the chapter. You guys... Well, the word on the street is that you guys are developing factions and schisms within the congregation. I heard from some people in Chloe's house. They came by and told me, stop it. Some of you are choosing this leader. Some of you are looking at that sort of approach to theology. Stop it. Love each other. It's a difficult word in the midst of, if you will, a crisis for the congregation. And I would suggest this difficult word for crisis in congregation is appropriate for us today. Ooh, are we a congregation in crisis? No, here's crisis. Here's why I want to say it's appropriate for us for today. Because this is a wonderful moment in our congregational life where we can evaluate our love and our care for one another when we're not in crisis. Because Paul had to address the Corinthians in the middle of a mess. And in the middle of a mess, it's difficult to make 
wise and credible decisions at times and make moves in the middle of struggle. But we're not in a relational crisis, so now is a time to think through the dynamics of congregational life and love and what, what's our, how are we working together? Not while we're in crisis, but now in case a crisis comes, so we got some practice. And I'd say that's the case for the folk at First Christian Decatur and for our fine folk in Lovington. In both churches, there's no relational church. There's no relational stuff going on right now, and there may be some tough choices ahead of for us. I mean, we've got to make some decisions about mission, mission, and we have to pray with some intensity about the directions regarding our combined ministries. But there's no relational crisis, and so now, while there's no relational crisis, let's figure out how we're going to do life now and practice when the pressure is off, if you will. And so, if that's the context. What do we say about love from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 for a congregation? Now, as I've been working with this passage over the past few weeks, initially I thought I'd just, we'd do a long list. But I thought, I'm going to, I'd be skimming too much. So frankly, what we're going to do, we're just going to zero on a few of these ideas, and we'll come back sometime in the future and unpack some more. But for now, what could we say are some of 1 Corinthians, what are some of Scripture's love actions that we should be trying to follow as a congregation. First of all, one that pops out to me is that we put, have to put others before ourselves. In other words, love is not self-seeking. Others before ourselves. Come here. Yes. Yeah. You didn't know I was going to call you on stage, did I? Come around, come around. Come around. I'm going to hear this from your mother tomorrow, aren't I? Probably. Probably, okay. Her, her mother works in the office. So I've got, three, I've got some candy bars. Okay. Which one do you want? Three musketeers. You like, you like three musketeers? Yeah. Do you like if I prepare it for you? <laughs> no, thank you? Oh, it's really good. That's okay. Here you go. <laughs> what was with... Okay, so why did you all laugh? Why you were appalled, right? You did a fine job. Here's one more. Share that with everybody in the row. There you go. I'm keeping this one. So, what was wrong with that? It was that well, you, Wayne, you took a bite before she did, right? You put yourself before her. This business of putting others first, great job. This business of putting others before ourselves is a learned trait because we have to instruct people how to do it, right? Think about how toddlers act. Now, Jenny, go ahead and share that with somebody else. Or, or Bobby, you have to let someone else play on your drum from time to time. We teach it because toddlers are by what? They're greedy by nature, right? Are adults any different? We're not, are we? You knew by watching me, individually and collectively, there's this ah, moment, right? As I took the bite off that chocolate bar, you knew immediately that taking that bite was wrong. It was impolite. It was rude. But Paul says... You need to be careful how you act toward one another because love is not self-seeking. How does that work out for the church? Because this passage is about church life, right? 
we say, oh, that group over there can be highlighted for a little while, and they can get some attention, as long as I get my share of the attention as well. Or we wonder things like this. Why are all the young people's preferences more important than mine? Or young people might say, why are all the old people's traditions more important than us younger people's needs? Paul tells his congregation that love is what? Love is not self-seeking. In the life of a church, it's not self-seeking. We put others ahead of ourselves, we put others' programs ahead of our programs. Here's another idea coming out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You don't keep score. Love keeps no record of wrongs, Paul says. And uh, it's hard at the house. It's even harder at the church. I mean, why say it's hard at the church versus the house? Well, because at the house, if you keep score on all the things that have gone wrong and the way in which people have mistreated you and everything, how are you going to manage doing life together? You know, you've got to, on Wednesday, you've got to, you've got to provide dinner for everybody Wednesday night. You've got, you know, the grass has to be mowed on Saturday. And there are all these tasks that you've got to do as a family life together. And if we're going to be upset with one another and carry around that baggage, life's not going to go well. But, so you have to figure it out. In church life, if we have some struggles relationally with someone else. And, you know, we can keep score in the church. You know how we can keep score? Well, you know, they always go to the 11 o'clock service. I'm never going to the 11 o'clock service again. Right? Or, you know what? I, I'm just going to skip them ever seeing me. I'm going to go to a different church altogether. I'm going to keep score. Now, I'm aware of this, that we often offend and wrong one another from time to time. In my years here at First Christian Church, I've offended probably every, everybody that's somewhere along the line. It's not my intent, but I know that it's occurred. I say things the wrong way. Perhaps I don't see your needs. Maybe I overstep my authority. I can be blind to reality. I can be boorish. Some of you are nodding way too, sim too quickly on this, by the way. <laughs> I can be blind to reality. I can be boorish. I can, I can direct improperly or incorrectly. I can make poor decisions at times. You know what I'm asking you to do in, my, in light of all of that? Don't keep score. Forgive me. You know why? Because I'm doing everything within me to forgive you when you do the same. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Think of it this way. In June, just a few weeks ago, a couple from the Dallas-Fort Worth area went to Florida for a few days' vacation. And after the vacation, they're flying back to DFW, and they check in in, in Tampa. Their names are the Horbins. And they check their luggage in. They get all the way to DFW. They're watching the luggage come around the carousel. The husband's luggage comes, but the wife's doesn't show up. And uh, uh, her name is Kristen Horbin. She told WFAA News, we waited and waited and waited, and my bag never showed up. And then the woman behind the counter said, oh, maybe that's your bag over there. And I look over, and it's my belongings all heaped into a bin. Half of them are destroyed, and most of them are missing. Now, once this made the news, American Airlines apologized. They sent her a $3,500 check. Go ahead, mess up with my baggage, I'd say. <laughs> $3,500 check and a $300 travel voucher, okay? And according to the airline spokesman, this is what cracks me up. The incident is currently being investigated. It appears the bag may have accidentally been caught on a piece of machinery during travel. 
do you think? A piece of machinery? For crying out loud, Godzilla was in the bottom of that plane, <laughs> chewing on that luggage, okay? Now, here's what, what make, when I saw that story, what made me wonder is, what, what if Kristen Horbin had said, well, I'm going to still wheel my luggage out of the airport because it's my luggage, and they broke it, and I want everybody to know that they broke it. She'd have to manage that, and people would be looking, going, man, what's wrong with that lady? What's with, what's with that mess? Yet, when we have mistakes occur within relationships, what do we do? We pull that ugly baggage behind us and we keep score. It's obnoxious, it's foul, it's messed up, and then we have to box it up in weird shapes. So we have to be intentional about how we hold on to it because otherwise some of that foulness, some of that odor might escape. No, we want to hold it all. Now, I'm not suggesting that unhealthy relationships need to always continue. We've talked about that in the past. However, Scripture is saying that within the context, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is written to a congregation, within the context of congregational life, don't keep score, love keeps no record of long, wrongs. Keeping score is the same as dragging that useless luggage through the airport. It's a miserable experience. Look again at what Paul has to say. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Keeps no record of wrongs. That's the, don't keep score. Love doesn't delight in evil. Again, this is written to a, a Corinthian congregation, a Christian congregation, and it appears that some were glad when evil was triumphing in someone else's life. It doesn't delight in evil. It's not like when you know, something bad happens to somebody and you're rejoicing in that. That's not love. Beloved, let's learn to act now before a crisis might arise. That way, if difficulty comes in the future, we've got a track record and we've practiced. You know, we've, we've got it figured out how we're going to do life and be in the habit of loving even in the midst of some opposing views from time to time because there will be opposing viewpoints in the future. That's bound to happen. Who are we kidding? We have so many people and we have so many mission endeavors in play and so many blessed mission prospects in front of us. We're not always going to be able to figure it out where everybody's in complete, well, yay. But on the other hand, in those moments, through a prayerful plea to God, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to choose grace and I'm going to say, Lord God, cover our life together with a liberal dose of love. And, and, and let me close it with this by saying this. I, I love this congregation. I love the people that we're ministering to right now. Less than I love the people that we're with right now. And um, when people, you know, we, on behalf of the church, we've done quite a bit of traveling in the last six months with DHF and been in lots of different churches. And people say, where are you from? And I always say, well, we're from central Illinois. We're from Decatur. We're from First Christian Church. And some of you may say, well, you're not really. You've, you got that Australian bit and that Canadian bit, and you know, then you had some time in Oklahoma and so forth and so on. Well, yeah, that may be the case, but we've lived with you and done life with you longer than any other place in our life. That's not a, I'm not like, that's a checkpoint. I'm not saying that. But think about this. Yeah, I was born and raised in Australia, and I have a long family history there. But I was 11 when we left Australia, 11 years in Australia. 
Then we moved to Canada. I was there 10 years. By the time I went to college and all that sort of stuff, I, was, I left Canada at 21 or, or a little bit younger. But we lived in Tulsa, yeah, for 13 years. And we did ministry overseas. I get that for a few years. But do you know where we've lived the longest? We're coming up in 25 years in central Illinois serving at this church. And so when people ask where you're from, here. I'm from Decatur. I'm from central Illinois. I'm from the people who, in my mind, are the salt of the earth. And this is what I, we get, I get to. I don't have to. I get to do this with you. And I don't, please hear that, not from an ego point of view, but it's good. It's all good. And may the love of Christ continue to be shed abroad in our hearts together through the work and the bond of his spirit of peace. In Christ's name, amen. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, I'm so thankful, Lord, that we're part of a congregation that's expressed in different ways today. Uh, we got people in a number of different auditoriums across the community. Uh, we're all together, Lord, striving to learn what it means to love you and then how to love each other. I thank you that there are people who've walked that journey with me now for many, many years and some who are just starting. Uh, I count it a privilege, God. And may you continue to shed your, to spread your love into our hearts and into our lives together, we pray in Christ's name.